Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist with me, Ben Valsner, with Chris Smith and with Dave Ansell. And as usual, we'll kick off with a look at this week's science news. Moss spores seem to get an extra lift from the same process that generates smoke rings and mushroom clouds, according to new research published in the journal Science this week. Dwight Whitaker at Pomona College in California and Joan Edwards at Williams College, Massachusetts, realised that the spores of sphagnum moss couldn't possibly reach as high as they do by ballistic propulsion alone, so they set out to try and find the moss's trick. Sphagnum moss is thought to store more carbon than any other plant genus, and it covers around 1% of the Earth's surface, so it's very important plants. In order to distribute its spores, it fires them upwards into a turbulent patch of air where they're picked up and transported on eddies and breezes. To take advantage of the breeze, the spores have to be very light, and they have a terminal velocity of just 5 millimetres per second and that low terminal velocity creates a problem when getting through a layer of still air directly above the moss, where the spores will rapidly decelerate. The spores develop in the top half of a 2 mil spherical capsule, the bottom half of which is actually hollow, just full of air, and each capsule contains 20,000 to 250,000 spores. But when the conditions are right, these capsules dehydrate and they become cylindrical instead of spherical. In this process, they vastly increase the air pressure in the hollow bit at the bottom. Eventually the capsule fails and the internal pressure fires both the spore and a little puff of air upwards. And this puff of air creates a vortex. It's a sort of self-sustaining ring of rising air, very much like a smoke ring or a mushroom cloud, which is strong enough to carry the spore far further upwards than it would otherwise go, and up high enough into this turbulent air to be carried away. And high-speed imaging confirmed their hypothesis. This is really nice. Now, we know of a few species that do take advantage of vortices like this. Bees certainly do when they're flying, jellyfish underwater. But this is the very first example of vortex use in plants. Very nice. It's really beautiful. Now, carbon capture has often been suggested as a way to reduce carbon emissions. So far, it's normally just meant collecting carbon dioxide and hiding it somewhere down a mine or down an oil well. But the ideal solution would be some way of converting the carbon dioxide back to carbon, releasing the oxygen. The natural way of doing this would, of course, be to harvest sunlight with plants. The biomass which is produced can be sequestered. Eventually that goes on to produce oil or coal and so forth. But the highest efficiency plants only convert a few percent of the sun's energy into biomass. And if you want to use it as a fuel, the best conversion efficiency is less than 0.5%. Now, a more radical approach to this problem has been to use solar electricity to electrolyse or split the carbon dioxide straight into carbon and oxygen. Whilst in comparison to photosynthesis, this is good, it still wastes a large amount of solar energy, as most solar cells can't use the huge amount of infrared, about half the energy, which is basically just thermal energy in sunlight. Now, Stuart Licht, which is a wonderful word, it means light in German, and colleagues from Washington, D.C. have come up with a way of increasing this efficiency. They're electrolyzing carbon dioxide dissolved in lithium carbonate, so still using electricity. They've discovered that if you heat the system up to 850 or 950 degrees centigrade, you need 40% less electricity to split the carbon dioxide. It's an endothermic reaction. It needs energy, and it's taking some of that energy directly from the heat. 
The really neat thing about this is you can use the infrared part of the solar spectrum to heat up the electrolysis cell while still using a solar cell at maximum efficiency, in fact slightly better than normal as there's less overheating problems to generate the electricity to split the carbon dioxide. Now using the most efficient solar cells available, they think they can use between 30 and 55% of the sun's energy to either produce carbon directly or to a slightly higher temperature, carbon monoxide. So it could be used either to sequester carbon or the carbon monoxide could be used as a feedstock to produce hydrocarbon fuels or, in fact, straight hydrogen. Excellent. Chris? So, Dave, if you make the carbon this way, apart from turning it into fuels, would the idea be then to put it somewhere? You could put that carbon as a solid blob of carbon back down a coal mine so that it would not then be released again back into the atmosphere? Yeah, you could basically just bury it, and it's a much more efficient way of burying it as a solid than as a gas because it's obviously much more condensed and involves carrying around less high-pressure gases. Much easier to deal with. And I suppose one benefit is you, you could actually use it as a fuel if you get caught short later anyway couldn't you yeah you're essentially just making coal (laughs) indeed um well i I want to have a chat this week about a story that's made a few headlines around the world it's the idea that that scientists might by uh using a vaccine patch enable us to actually dispense excuse the pun with needles and syringes so this is the work of sean sullivan who's based at emory university and what he and his colleagues have done and, and published in nature medicine this week is to turn a polymer material it's called polyvinyl pyrolidone into a patch matrix so what you can do is you make a little sticking plaster effectively which has all of these tiny needle thin projections on the surface they are tens of microns across so very very tiny a thousandth of a millimetre or so across and about three quarters of a millimetre high and when you apply them to the skin they penetrate roughly about a fifth of a millimetre into the epidermis and the nature of the polymer means that within about 15 minutes 90 percent of this polymer will have just dissolved into the skin and what they've then discovered you can do is to embed within the matrix of that polymer dried antigen. So you can take, say, the protein, which is the coat of a flu virus, dry it down, this is a process called lyophilization, embed it within the polymer, and then when the polymer dissolves, of course, it leaves behind in the skin the antigen of the flu virus. And we know that skin is very well endowed with classes of cells called professional antigen-presenting cells, or dendritic cells. These are very good at presenting to the immune system things that they find, probably because the skin is always being exposed to various antigens. So it's very richly endowed with these cells in order to keep the immune system informed as to the kind of things we're coming into contact with. And this means that vaccines put just into the skin rather than deep into the muscle, which a syringe and needle would do, are actually very good at driving an immune response. In their experiments, what they show is that mice can be protected against lethal doses of the flu by using this technique every bit as well as they were by using a needle and syringe. And even better, if you come back a period of time later, which is probably more representative of a natural infection because most people are not immediately exposed to a virus after they've been immunised against it, what they find is that the mice they tested have a very good recall memory of the immune response. In other words, they mount a response very vigorously and very quickly. And this could make a very big difference, this kind of technique, for people who are needle-phobic, obviously, but also in places like the third world. Because it's very easy for us in the first world to say, well, you just give someone a vaccine, but syringes and needles are like gold dust. And because of that, when you use them overseas, there's a big temptation to reuse them, and this means they could also spread diseases. A patch like this doesn't carry that risk, and the other major benefit is that the vaccine is stable. It doesn't have to be kept cold and refrigerated, so you could just mail it out or carry it across continents with no need for refrigeration and it will still work. 
That sounds excellent. That's really what we need. But how does this compare to existing patches? Can we have nicotine patches? Of course, I know there are pain-killing patches as well. What's the difference? What are they doing? Well, those patches are relying on the fact that the drugs they're administering are very lipophilic. In other words, they dissolve in fats and oils, which means they move into the skin effectively under their own steam because skin's quite fatty, and then they get into the body. This approach is actually manufacturing a matrix of tiny needles that are so small that you don't actually feel them going into your skin, but they're puncturing the outer hardened stratum corneum, as it's known, uh, of the skin, and carrying the antigen in with them and then dissolving so it leaves the antigen behind and the polymer's harmless. Excellent. Pleased to hear it. A family of proteins has been identified that may limit the number of times that any cell can divide, according to research published in the journal Nature Cell Biology this week. Most cells seem to have an inbuilt limit to the number of times they can divide. From human cells down to a single-celled organism like yeast, they seem to limit themselves to only 20 to 30 divisions, somewhere around that number. Cell ageing is thought to be related to the build-up of toxic agents, but the mechanisms aren't actually very well understood. Now, Rong Li and colleagues in Kansas have identified a group of chemicals that may be responsible for limiting the reproductive lifespan of a cell. Yeast cells multiply by growing and then dividing. A mother cell will create more of the components it requires, and then a daughter cell will bud off from the mother. Each cell can only do this 20 to 30 times, and so far this has also been put down to the damage of DNA. Multidrug resistance, or MDR, proteins are involved in transporting chemicals across the plasma membrane in yeast, across the, the membrane on the outside, and they're inherited from the mother cell. Now, oddly, this inheritance is actually asymmetric. What happens is that only the newly formed proteins go into the daughter cell. So over subsequent divisions, the mother cell will keep hold of the old MDR proteins, which may become damaged or lose function. And as these proteins have crucial roles in metabolism and in dealing with stress, this will lead to a gradual reduction in fitness of the mother cell and therefore a limit to how many times it can divide. Supporting this hypothesis, yeast cells lacking certain MDR genes show a reduced replicative lifespan, so they can't divide as many times, while introducing extra MDR genes to yeast increases the reproductive lifespan. It's now going to be very important to see if membrane transporter proteins show the same asymmetry in, for example, mammalian stem cells, which could limit the potential of a stem cell. And we also want to see if the same proteins play a role in ageing in multicellular organisms, for example, us. I can see why there might be some point in a um, cell not wanting to keep on dividing infinitely in a creature like us in a human because it's a sort of anti-cancer system because if cells naturally don't keep on dividing then there's another um, thing to stop you getting cancer. But why is it an advantage in yeast, I wonder? I'm really not sure. The process by which this happens is the proteins are sort of selectively shuffled over to one side of the cell and it's that area which goes on to become the daughter. But I don't know if there would be any advantage in doing this except perhaps that it doesn't matter because of the build-up of toxins and DNA damage. Maybe there are so many different factors that actually these proteins are just one other thing that's happening and they would run out of, of replicative ability after 20 or 30 anyway because of other things. So it's nice that we're starting to get to the heart of what controls cell ageing, but uh, there's still quite a lot of work to be done. 
Brilliant. Now, completely different subject. Um, a new way of creating solid batteries could store more energy and f- make them last a lot longer. Now, lithium-ion batteries are now pretty much the standard high-performance rechargeable battery. They have a relatively high capacity and are becoming more affordable, and you find them in most laptop and phone batteries, and they've recently been used in things like the Tesla Roadster sports car. However, there are still major issues. The cathode slowly change shape and degrade over time. This causes an electric car battery to sometimes only last two to three years, which is a real problem with a car with such a short lifespan. This is related to the batteries using a liquid electrolyte which carries ions between the electrodes, which also requires lots of infrastructure to hold everything apart, avoid short circuits and keep the electrolyte in. Now, one solution to this problem is to use a solid electrolyte, which sounds quite surprising, but you can get solids which will allow ions to move um, within them while still remaining a solid. Unfortunately, these normally have to be made using vacuum deposition techniques like how you'd make a computer chip which are very very expensive and you could never scale them up to a car battery for example however a company called planar energy has developed a process for making these solid state batteries using printing techniques which are far cheaper than deposition they've also apparently increased the conductivity of the solid electrolyte to be comparable with the conventional electrolytes and they've made high quality electrodes using a chemical self-assembly process where reactions between the inks and the surface can produce complex structures with much, much better properties. Apparently these batteries have a capacity similar to the best high performance conventional batteries but should survive much longer, have about three times the capacity, lose energy more slowly so they don't self-discharge and be safer than conventional lithium ion batteries which do have a horrible tendency to occasionally catch fire which has caused great embarrassment to various big companies even if they don't manage the half the current price per kilowatt hour which they're promising they do sound like a very interesting technology for many applications very interesting stuff aren't solid batteries at a a slight disadvantage and because the ions have to move through something solid it means that they take longer to charge and actually changing the amount of current you're pulling out of one takes longer than it would do with a a liquid battery. Um, Well, that's part of the um, breakthrough here is because they've increased the conductivity of the um, solid electrolyte up to similar to a um, liquid one. That shouldn't be a major problem. Excellent. Chris? Yes, well, hopefully that will save me the ignominy of having my shaver go flat when I'm on holiday, which seems to keep happening if I can find better batteries for it. We're also in the news this week. uh, A vaginal gel, which contains the anti-age drug called tenofovir, has been found to reduce transmission rates of HIV amongst women by up to 50%. And to explain a bit more about the study, which was carried out in South Africa, Slim Abdul Karim is from the University of KwaZulu-Natal, is with us now to tell us what he did. Hello Slim, thank you for joining us. Um, kick off if you would by first of all setting the scene for us. How big a problem worldwide is HIV? What's the scale of the problem? Globally we have a, a good idea of what's going on with the HIV epidemic. We know in 2009 that there are 33.4 million people living with HIV and that during 2008 there were 2.7 million new infections and about 2 million deaths. So globally, the epidemic continues to grow, although it's growing more slowly now than it was some five years ago. And just totting those numbers up in my head, that would mean something in the region of 7,000 people a day must be dying of HIV and 7,000 new infections every day. So we need to sort this out. Vaccines are only at best, the trial in Thailand suggests, 30% effective. So you've been taking a slightly different approach, these gels. How do they work? There have been several gels that have been made and foams and sponges as well. 
and they've been impregnated with different kinds of chemicals and called microbicides. And the underlying hypothesis is that these chemicals, when put into the genital tract to the vagina, would prevent HIV from causing infection. Well, up to now, in the past 15 years or so, there have been 11 trials of six candidates, none of which have been shown to work. So it's been a pretty difficult time in the field to find something that could uh, prevent HIV infection. So we took a different approach. We decided to go with an antiretroviral drug, which is very widely used for treating AIDS. And this drug is called tenofovir. It is a standard part of many cocktails of three drugs that are used to treat AIDS. So we put this drug into a gel formulation, and we put it into single-use applicators, and we did a study of 889 women in South Africa where they were asked to use this gel within 12 hours before sex and within 12 hours after sex. And what we found was that in the half of the women that used the tenofovir gel, that there was um, uh, 38 HIV infections compared to 60 HIV infections in those women who were using an identical placebo gel. So that translates to a 39% protective effect of this gel. And over what period of time were you studying? How long did you look at? The first woman was enrolled in May of 2007, and we completed the study in December of last year. So two and a half years in total. So if you extrapolated this to making this available to every exposed individual, let's just take Africa as an example, how many cases of HIV do you think you could prevent per year with this strategy? So we've done some mathematical modelling, creating a hypothetical scenario as if we were implementing this in South Africa where we have very good data and we emulated the kinds of adherence we get within the study. So within the study, for those women who use the gel most consistently, they had 54% protection. And those women who use it least consistently, less than 50% of their sex acts, we saw 28% protection. So what we did is we modeled that. We said, okay, what if 40% of the women used it in a consistent way as we observed in our study, and 40% used it in an inconsistent way as we observed in our study. And if we did so, then over the next 20 years, we estimate we could prevent 1.3 million new HIV infections and avert just over 800,000 deaths just in South Africa alone. And at what cost would that come at? How much would it cost to implement that? Now, that's a bit more difficult to calculate. We know the actual cost of the gel is negligible. Uh, for the study where we, you know, we only made a small, small quantity, so we didn't benefit from scale, the actual gel costs uh, about a cent or two in U.S. cents. So the cost is not in the gel, but it's in the applicator and the wrapping and the uh, packaging and so on, so that for the trial, each applicator costs us 32 U.S. cents. If it's produced to scale, we would estimate that it would go substantially less. And we've worked out that even at the current price of 32 U.S. cents, it is still cost-effective to implement because the cost of treating somebody who develops HIV infection is so high that even at this cost, to use the gel is more cost-effective than to allow women 
to get infected. Well, that brings me on to my last point, which is that the way we treat HIV is with triple therapy. We give people a combination of drugs so that the risk of the virus becoming resistant is reduced. You're using a single agent in this gel. Is there not a risk that we could end up eroding the ability of this agent to prevent HIV because people are being exposed to this as monotherapy? Yes, it is a hypothetical concern, and certainly before the results of our study has been looked at in many different ways. These are the first data that come out now where we can look at whether any of the 38 women who became infected while using tenofovir, whether they developed resistance, and the answer was no. We found no evidence of tenofovir resistance. Indeed. Slim, thank you very much. That's Slim Abdul Karim, who is from the University of KwaZulu-Natal in Durban, South Africa, and he was reporting there the study that he's just published in the journal Science, looking at the use of a vaginal gel which contains the agent tenofovir, which seems to be able to reduce by a significant margin the rate of HIV transmission. We'll put details of that study and all of the other news stories that we've covered in the news this week on our website. You can find that at nakedscientist.com forward slash news. The Naked Scientist News Flash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.